0: Hey everybody, welcome to Connected. I'm Kyle Van Pelt, co-founder and CEO of Mile Marker. My co-host is Judd Mackerel, co-founder of Milemarker as well. Connected is a show about the people and technologies that are shaping and building the wealth management industry. More people than ever are searching for great financial advice, and more firms than ever are trying to figure out how to scale their operations to serve those who are searching for their advice. We believe that better connected technology provides the space for better connected people, which leads to better advice. Welcome to Connected.
1: All right, hey everybody, welcome to this edition of Connected. I am your host, Kyle Van Pelt and I am super excited to be joined today by Shannon Rossick. Shannon, thanks for being on the show. Oh, so happy to be on this side of things. Thanks for having me, Kyle. Yeah, absolutely. So for those who don't know who you are, give us like the quick Shannon Rossick crash course. Give us the introduction on who Shannon is.
2: Absolutely. I, if you follow me on Twitter or anything like that for business, I self-identify as a pony savant, a fintech and wealth tech ambassador and evangelist and a travel junkie. So that kind of encompasses who I am. But in terms of where I fit into this industry, I've had a really fortunate and cool career. I had no intention of going into finance whatsoever. I'm not going to lie. My background is in mass communication. So had the journalism and broadcasting background, which, which I always loved and fell into this world by chance when Investment News took a chance on me as a marketing coordinator And then from there, a lot of folks have just followed my trajectory, bouncing around from various media publications all the way to being on the service provider side of things, now back into media. So it's been a fun and one heck of a ride.
1: Oh, that's awesome. We're gonna talk about all of those things. So I appreciate you sharing that, way to tee it up. But first and foremost, this show is called Connected, and it's all about building better connections. So whether that's better connected technology or aspirationally better connected people, so Shannon, as somebody who interviews a lot of people, either via podcast or via segments when you go to conferences, you have to connect with them quickly and you have to make them feel comfortable. So for the people who listen to this show, I think being able to build good connections quickly is really important, whether that's an advisor or working with a prospect and they want them to feel comfortable, whether that's somebody who's interviewing or, or, or several ways. So. In your opinion what does it take to build great connections how do you make people feel comfortable easily when interviewing them and connecting with them for people you don't know well i'm going to flip the script on you
2: here in a little bit because you were actually one of the first folks i interviewed when i was just getting going in the video scene (laughs) and career so i'm going to ask you about that in a second what made you feel comfortable (laughs) working with me in our first interview but You know, I will say we talk a lot in our industry about the human connection, as you mentioned, right? Even though everything is tech-driven now, it still can't capture that human connection or relationship because at the end of the day, it's so nuanced. And as a baseline, I always try to build rapport by connecting through shared interests, mutual understanding, humor, and empathy, because building rapport is just so critical because it's based on trust. It's how humans connect, right? we identify shared feelings and establish that two-way communication. And rapport really develops out of meaningful conversations and willingness to embrace different points of view. So I have kind of six rules that I follow when it comes to building connections. And keep in mind, this isn't meant to be a checklist. Everyone is different. But a lot of these come naturally to us as is and we don't even realize we're doing it. So number one, you know, it's basic, but remember people's names because it at the end of the day, it shows attentiveness and it, again, builds that trust. Number two, find that common ground, something that kind of breaks down those barriers, breaks down those walls and makes that person feel comfortable. Number three, actively listen. You'd be surprised at how many people actually struggle with that. With so many distractions around us, I'm sure you've had conversations with people where they're looking at their watch or reaching for their phone, or maybe they're looking off into space because they have something else on their mind and people pick up on that, right? So be sure to actively listen. Number four, ask questions. People want to talk, tell about themselves. That makes them feel comfortable when you're asking them questions that they feel comfortable answering. And number five, mind your body language. Again, make sure you're making that eye contact. You have a good handshake. You're smiling. Mirror their expressions a little bit. And again, don't be looking off into space or your phone or sighing because you're trying to get out of a conversation or something. And number six might be the biggest and probably the hardest, but reserve judgment. You're just getting to know someone. There's no need to jump to conclusions unless they're being truly egregious for some reason. But for the most part, table any other thoughts you have, because at the end of the day, people just want to talk. They just want to have conversations and, and build that trust. And that that's what it comes
1: down to. Those are, again, kind of the six rules that I follow. That's amazing. Uh, that was so systematic and incredibly uh, detailed. So I appreciate that because I think. A lot of people sometimes don't know how they do it, right? It's like, hey, I just connect with people, but I love that you, there. there is an element of just natural human to human connection we all have, but following sort of the uh, those principles, like you said, it's not always a checklist, but I love that. And I, I empathize a ton with the name portion. A mentor of mine said a long time ago, a name is a bridge to relationship. One of the things people most like to hear is their own name, because we're all, somewhat naturally egotistical, even if we try to fight that or whatever, but we love to hear our own name and and that's really, really important. So I love that along with the other five tips that you need so that's oh excellent. well They're that's sharing. what makes
2: us human right at the end of the day is is that's our identifier at a base level and i did promise that we'd flip the script so <laughs> i want i want your perspective because what well, that was all the way back i think that was td link right all the way yeah, back in yeah. 2016 or 17 yeah. and you were one of my first interview subjects and you were a willing participant <laughs> and so i guess from your perspective what made you feel comfortable to basically i put you on the spot i put you in the hot seat and said hey be on camera
1: are you okay with this i'm new to this you're new to this let's give it a go (laughs) yeah yeah um so when i think about that interaction and obviously it's specific to being interviewed on camera and all of that stuff i'm a relatively comfortable person but that's it's it's sort of inherently intimidating right because you're like this is very different there's lights there's cameras there's all kinds there's a microphone in my face it's not just having a normal conversation. So I remember feeling really intimidated. And I think the way that you made me feel comfortable, number one, you're really great at like self-deprecating humor. So you like immediately made fun of yourself and it kind of put me at ease feeling like, okay, you know, this isn't as serious as it's made out to be with all of this gear and all of this stuff, but also, and I guess it's a thin line here, as I think about the audience. It's like self-deprecating humor is very disarming, but you also don't want to erode your own credibility when right. doing that. Right, it's a fine line. Yes. So you, you know, you did a good job of of kind of yeah, self-deprecating humor, but also not eroding credibility of investment news or your ability as a as a you know person. So it's like, oh, this is still going to be valuable. Like this isn't a joke. So that's the first thing I think about. You laugh very easily. And so I think that's probably the the theme of how I would answer that is you took something that felt very serious and you made it feel less formal and less serious, even though it was. And I would put that out to the advisors listening to this show. I mean, we're talking about me doing an, an interview on camera, but when somebody comes in to talk to an advisor about their financial situation, it's very tense and intimidating and serious to them because they sort of feel like they're getting ready to bare their soul. So how can you you know, kind of cut the tension Maybe do some self-deprecating humor while while still maintaining that hey we're gonna I'm going to take this seriously but you shouldn't feel uncomfortable because we're gonna help you through this. So that's how I would answer your question. Oh well, good to know because
2: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> nothing has changed. I still take that approach.
1: <laughs> it's good. I happen to know, and you talked about it in the in the intro that you're a pony savant, right? You have an immense love for horses. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But staying on this connection theme. Uh, As somebody who also loves to to ride horses and, and grew up with them, there's a special connection between a rider and a horse and building that emotional connection. I'm curious for you, how is learning to connect with horses and all of that, has that helped at all with interviewing people, with building connections with other humans? Or is that just like a completely crazy question?
2: So a couple things to unpack here. Number one, this is one of the greatest questions I've ever been asked. Number two, <laughs> what a missed opportunity that we did not do this on horseback to really <laughs> bring this all together. <laughs> yeah. But number three, it honestly, it, it's very similar to building trust with humans. You need to do the same with horses. They respond to your energy, your verbal cues, your physical cues. And it's very much a give and take relationship Along with a lot of patience, observation, trial and error, trying to figure out what they'll respond to, what makes them comfortable picking up on their body language. So it's very similar to a human interaction. So it's taught me a whole lot. I've been doing it almost my whole life and it's always been my outlet and escape. But to put it in context of the human connection, I've never thought of it that way. So I'm glad you asked that because as I thought about it, I mean, man, that it's almost identical. It's very much that delicate balance and dance of how far can I push this? Do I need to know when to pull back, when to push a little further. Kind of similar to you know talking money. It's most one of the most sensitive things you can talk about. And when you're approaching an advisor who usually is a stranger, you need to be able to pick up on those verbal and nonverbal cues to make sure that that conversation's going in the right direction. You're not going to spill your guts to somebody that you feel reservations about. And horses are very similar. You can just tell by their eyes, their ears, their sounds, their body language, how they're going to react to you. So not that I'm calling advisors horses or anything like, <laughs> like that. That's
1: how I'm trying to go, but the relationship is very similar. No, that's awesome. I think <laughs> the biggest takeaway I hear from that, and I hear you saying as you provide this insight is, Probably so many of us go on autopilot when it comes to interacting with others. We just sort of yes. set it into, we're going to do this meeting, et cetera, et cetera. And what I hear you saying is whether it's on the back of a horse, which can be very dangerous, for those of you who don't understand, if you if you don't have that connection, it could be dangerous. Or you're interviewing somebody or for advisors sitting across the table. Just don't go into autopilot. You have to, to be conscious of everything that you're doing the way you're connecting with people, the way you're interacting, the way you're making them feel, and you should be reading all of those interactions as well. I feel like that's what I hear you saying.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. And it's funny, and and even though I tend to over-prepare, you know me with my interviews, I have my questions prepared, my outlines prepared. I don't, Always share them depending on who I'm going to be working with, because I don't want folks to sound scripted. You know what you're yeah. talking about. You know that you're an expert in that area. Just be you, be be natural. I don't want it to ever feel like this rigid situation and i just want folks to feel comfortable and natural at the end of the day i'm i'm not out to get anyone i'm not out to make somebody feel uncomfortable or have a gotcha yeah. moment in my interviews by any means that's not what i'm looking for but i am looking for somebody to to go beyond the surface level and actually give me something that's tangible that's a good takeaway a piece of advice right not just like you said that autopilot answer that you're kind of trained yeah. to say or whatever it may be.
1: Oh, I love it. Awesome. Well, all right, let's 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 talk about horses a little bit more because I Please. love it. Um, <laughs> so again, Pony Savant, Barrel <laughs> Racer. Like, how did you get into that? Tell us more about where your love for horses came from. Is that from your parents? Is it something that just you developed as a kid and got into? Like, tell us a little bit more about how this came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I've
2: actually been riding since I was eight. And I did not come from... A family of ranchers or horse owners. We were always animal lovers, but I'm an only child. And so I always joke that I ended up with animals instead of siblings. And I fell in love with it when I was young. And I actually started out writing English and loved it. That gave me my seat, a lot of confidence, gives you kind of discipline and structure. But As I got deeper into the scene, my parents kind of fell in love with it, too, and just being around the horses and understanding them. And it was much easier for them to pick up Western riding, obviously being a little bit older. So we careened down this path of, well, if I have a horse, then my parents also need horses so we can all ride together. And it honestly spiraled from there. There was a point that we actually had five horses on property. Yeah. So full-blown herd. And, you know, after a couple of years of doing Hunter Jumper, I was bit by the adrenaline bug and I got into the Gymkhana scene, which is basically Native American terminology for games. And that's everything from when you go to a Gymkhana, you'll see things like barrel racing, an event called the dash, pole bending. So these high speed events, they're fun because you're competing against yourself and the clock. And that's it. No one else really matters. And so I always loved that aspect of it. Just loved the speed aspect of it. And it's like I said, it's really just spiraled from there. I, I grew up with them in Connecticut. And when I moved to Colorado in 2017, I actually had to give it up for a little bit. And that was honestly, for lack of better terms, a bit soul crushing. And so it took me a few years to reestablish it out here in Colorado and now I have two again (laughs) so so I'm like oh I'm like Mark Bruno I need that bonus or raise because I light money on fire every month owning horses (laughs) and I eat a lot of peanut butter so please help (laughs) but it's totally worth it it's my outlet you know I'm totally that weird horse girl and big horse girl energy like most people that do know me like yourself (laughs) identify me with that and I am totally okay with it
1: I love it. I love it. Uh, So, on the show Yellowstone, they talk about barrel racers being like kind of a different breed of horse rider. Do you (laughs) identify with that? Do you like, is that true or are they coming out of left field with that?
2: So, I I have to laugh at that because I remember when those episodes came out and they started getting into the barrel racing scenes, and my mom called me and she was all upset and huffy. She goes, They're calling them buckle bunnies.
0: And
2: (laughs) And I'm like, Mom, like it, that's very specific scene. Like, sure. <laughs> if you if you want it, you know, take that for what it's worth. But for the, I mean, look, at the end of the day, barrel racers, they're intense people. They're hardcore. They work hard. They play hard. I mean, you, you have to be a, a little crazy to do what we do. I mean, you're running a thousand pound animal as fast as you can in very small circles. <laughs> and most of those horses are hot. They're very muscular, so you have to be able to to control them again, just with your body, and yeah. that is a crazy concept. But that's funny you say that because yes, yeah, she was really upset about that. She's like, "I don't want you being associated with that." <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, you know, again on on this show, uh, we try to help the audience get to know people and connect with them beyond just the industry. So I love I love this conversation. <laughs> um, but you talk about. It, especially in the, the type of stuff you got addicted to the adrenaline, how fast things move. I'm going to use that as a segue into our industry because it Ooh, feels like things you. are moving. <laughs> feels like things are just moving at light speed with so many different things going on. And so, Shannon, you're the director of Wealth Stack content and solutions for Informa. And, and you all recently hosted Wealth Stack conference in Florida and then the Wealth Stack conference out west. You have this unique perspective to be able to see all the content, all the discussions, all the topics that are going on. So from that perspective, I wanted to ask you, what are some of the big themes that you see in the wealth management industry right now? Absolutely.
2: There's a lot to unpack there. So so bear with me. I will say, number one, the tech stack, as we know, is constantly changing and digitization is the client experience. I think Ron Bolas actually said it best on one of my panels. He said risk scores and model portfolios should be dragged out back and shot in the head and burned to death. <laughs> and that is a direct quote. So we even put it in one of our articles, which is, which is why I love that I sit in the tech space because people do not hold back and they tell the truth. <laughs> I think. Digitization is a trend that's obviously driving the requirement of personalization. So that was one big takeaway that came out of the event for sure. Another one that's really reshaping the role of the advisor is the fact that Americans are experiencing increased longevity. And then that's being coupled with the need to finance a growing share of their own care, right? I think the stat recently is around 10,000 people in the US are turning 65 every day. And the number of older adults will really more than double over the next couple of decades. And that's going to top out around 88 million people and represent about 20% of the population by, by 2050. So the role of the advisor is no longer about getting people to retirement. It's about getting them through retirement. And what we're finding is that the the decumulation stage is much more complex, right? Obviously, advisors have mastered that accumulation phase, but decumulation is much more complicated, but it's a natural feature of retirement. It's having those advisors having to shift that mindset now of helping people get through those phases and also navigate very different risk on that side of things too. And so leaning into technology to deal with risks like, you know, sequence of returns, longevity, taxes, spiking expenses. So you're seeing firms like Income Labs, Retirement Conductor, crop up to help, you know, advisors really bridge that gap for folks and get them through that decumulation phase. So that was, that was really interesting to see because that's more of like a macro environmental trend that that we're seeing come out of it. And for many investors, that shift to retirement is very jarring. They've spent decades for preparing, and then they realize, oh gosh, I need an advisor just as much as I did in the accumulation phase, as much as I do you know, in this drawdown phase of things. And clients need information and guidance and support and an and access to a wide range of solutions that ultimately only advisors can really provide. That education is going to be so crucial and advisors have to keep up. But th- we're already asking a lot of this. And I know you and I have talked about this a lot because not only do they need to focus on advising their clients and doing what they do best, they then have to deal with their technology stacks and all the front, middle, and back office operations. And I I quote it all the time. So thank you for letting me use it all the time, whether you know or not. But your term of the accidental CTO, that still continues to be a major issue. That's not what advisors need to necessarily be dealing with. But we're getting there in an industry, it all comes down to, and obviously, we. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about data and AI a little bit uh, when it comes to these topics. So obviously with what mile marker is doing, you're seeing firms like that crop up and really try to solve for those challenges of having disparate systems that all talk differently to each other. And you're only as good as your worst data. I know I've said that to you before. So if your systems can't speak to each other and if you don't have a data strategy in place, that's going to be detrimental to your growth. You have firms like Years and Bridge FT who is using open architecture and APIs to pull together, you know, custodial data, which really seems to be the crux of a lot of folks' challenges. Right, is being able to pull that multi-custodial data together and have it you know, be able to create a cohesive picture for their clients. So, really interesting things obviously going on in that space. And then I'll go on my little AI rant <laughs> because obviously. AI's been around for a long time, but we're just now starting to see true applications within our industry, right? Whether it's in in marketing, people messing around with ChatGPT, we've seen folks like Orion FMG actually build out ChatGPT functionalities that they're rolling out to advisors. So a lot's happening. And I think it's really interesting that investors are actually interested in this because for the most part... Clients don't care what technology they're using, right? Like, am I having a good experience? Are you, Am I achieving the goals that I put forth in front of you? Are you helping me with that? Whatever it takes to get that done, great. I don't care what you're using. Can I access a portal and see my stuff? Great. But, you know, it was actually a Morgan Stanley Wealth Management survey from May of this year that said 63% of investors would be interested in working with a financial advisor that leverages AI, which is Really interesting. And obviously, that number is even higher in our demographic in ages 35 to 44. That's I think it's around 85% are interested in working with an advisor who leverages AI. And their belief still is that AI will not replace the advisor-client relationship, but they want to know that they are up to date in using those tools. Because let's face it, our, our generation and lower, we trust technology a lot more. And at the end of the day, we're okay. We grew up with it. We've messed around with it. We've seen various iterations of it. And that's just become the norm. And so I think it's going to be interesting as we kind of follow and see the use cases in different types of scenarios for for planning. I always say the Monte Carlo is really just the baseline for things, right? But that's changing. And AI is now being leveraged to make better judgment decisions, say, for example, around longevity. AI can take all of that that on. And I think one thing that's really interesting too that we're seeing is what's coming out of AI is that next best action planning, which essentially, just for listeners who may not know, that's at a base level, just businesses identifying the most effective marketing actions to take to drive you know, customers closer to or clients closer to a desired conversion or moment in time, so you know if you use Netflix. At the end of the day, I always use this example. You're familiar with AI powered recommendations, even if you don't realize it. I think there's like seven thousand TV shows or movies on the streaming service, so it's obviously impossible for a user to find all the shows they want to watch. So Netflix does it for them, right? And it leverages AI and machine learning to recommend the right content and the to the right user base, and then. You know, it digests all those usage patterns and preferences and it just works. But it's not just Netflix. And we've always said the Amazon effect in this industry and Amazon also leverages AI to recommend new products, purchases. You know, we're inundated on social media with it. More to come, but it's, it's really exciting. So the folks who get this right and crack the code when it comes to AI and integrating that into your practice, don't look at it like a threat. We already went through this with the robo-advisors. The fear-mongering was real. (laughs) We don't need to do this again. Yes, will things change? Will certain roles potentially be replaced? Sure, you have to be realistic about these things with the pace of change. But the winners are going to be the ones that, that again, lean into that human connection, but leverage AI and technology to ultimately make themselves and their practices better.
1: Extremely well said extremely well said and i think that last sentence really sums up too what's going on is the ai can be great for crunching the numbers it can be great for building the plans i just still don't believe it is going to be effective at replacing the connection that humans want so we talked at the beginning of this about how to better connect with each other how to better connect with your clients what ai should do is free you up to get even better at that to be able to be more present with people to be able to connect with them well a couple things i would just add on that is You know, number one, there is, I think, a lot of excitement around AI, but there's also a lot of compliance concern. And so what we're seeing at Milemarker is if you get your data right and you pull it into your own data warehouse, things like that, then you can be more confident applying large language models or AI to your own data without risk of it being kind of out there at risk, which makes compliance happier. So how can we leverage AI on your data and not put your data out into the rest of the world? So that's uh, something we're seeing in the wealth management space. And then also I love the uh, analogies of Netflix and Amazon and these things, because for advisors, what I would say is that works when you have huge amounts of things to process and crunch, like equities, like bond offerings, like ways you wanna construct portfolios for people, perhaps even aligned with their values. So. I think it's coming. I love everything you had to say on that about where it's going and I think that was very well said. Love that perspective from what you see across the content and the trends that are coming, really cool side of things. But then getting more into your direct experience You've been on obviously the media side of the business with Investment News and, and Asset TV and, and Informa and all of that, but you've also been on the other side of the table where you've been at Robust Wealth, you've been at uh, Flyer Technologies, where you sat on that side and you had to grow these businesses and you had to talk about it. So there's a couple of things I want to talk about here. But so going back to the media side, I've known you since the Gadget Girl days, <laughs> uh, which is a fun segment that you and Matt Ackerman did at Investment News. Not all of the audience may know what what that is or what we're talking about. So can you quickly share the Gadget Girl story before I go into my next question here?
2: Oh, yes. Yes, please. Man, those were the glory days, right? Yeah. So the concept of Gadget Girl and, and God bless Matt Ackerman and Mark Bruno for allowing me to run with these crazy ideas. But this is something Matt and I had cooked up. Investment News. And this is really when fintech and wealth tech were starting to explode in wealth management. And we said, hey, this stuff is complicated and it's not easy to talk about or explain, especially the technologies that are much more behind the scenes that act as more of the plumbing. And I always joke, how do you take something that's the plumbing and essentially make it sexy, right? And and make it sound interesting and be able to explain it because it can get very technical. So we said, hey, what if we did these kind of fun, campy, but educational under the hood looks at these fintech firms, come up with a theme for each one. We'll pull in taco trucks, for example, to talk about data aggregation. And so it evolved into this think Carmen San Diego meets Inspector Gadget. <laughs> Some people don't even know my name still. I'll see folks at conferences are like, "Hey, it's Gadget girl." So, it has it has endured. <laughs> I mean, at this point Man. it's like Gadget grandma, but totally fine. I'm trying to find a way to resurrect it if possible. <laughs> but uh, so you'd see me running around the conference floor uh, in a purple trench coat and a purple fedora. It was very identifiable. So, came up with a full-blown persona and that kind of gets into branding and things like that, talk about making connections. That was very disarming for people when I rolled up to an interview in a purple felt like trench coat asking them questions about technology. But honestly, folks loved it. And it really took off and became this kind of semi-viral series within our niche of an industry. No one was talking about technology like that. No one was looking at those firms like that. And so while traditional media is great and there's a place for that again, there's always that need for innovation and being differentiated. And so it allowed these firms to tell their stories in a fun, compelling way that made sense and helped them ultimately stand out. Because when you see a drone flying a burrito, like I did with Orchestrate back in the day, or I went surfing, I pushed you in a pool. like, this, And people are like, what the heck does that have to do with, with wealth management or technology? Well, everything, because that's part of the context. And so it was just a fun way to be able to do something different and, and obviously leverage a platform like Investment News to be able to do that and have that distribution. It was a blast. I think we ended up with something like 15 episodes. I mean, heck, I did everything yeah. from rock climbing at, at Red Rocks and we got involved with green screen. So I mean, yeah. that's the stuff I love. And I'm very fortunate because I never thought in the world of finance that I would be playing dress up essentially, but having meaningful and and useful and educational conversations about things that are ultimately really complex.
1: (laughs) Yeah, oh man, absolutely. Okay, so that being said, with all of that, in an industry full of like lighthouses and couples walking on the beach, holding hands for marketing and branding, how to stand out seems to be a topic we should talk about. And that's exactly what this was, right? You could have gone and done more interviews with people about technology, microphone and face sort of thing, but you guys came up with an interesting idea of how to stand out. Now for the advisors or the people listening who might not have green screens or things that are, that are really crazy, but I would just love to hear your, your thoughts on how people can better think outside the box and stand out for their branding to, to make them grow and get attention in a really noisy world sure well first off look i love a good whimsical
2: lighthouse motif so don't hate on those (laughs) but uh, in all seriousness and and i know you've heard this before from me but it, it comes down to authenticity do you show up the same way digitally as you do in person i know for me it's nothing's really different whether i'm on camera or i'm just having a natural conversation in person with you right i'm still the same person. So obviously there's some nuance for business purposes, but for the most part, it's all about being consistent. Do you have a clear mission and strategy of who you want to be, who you serve and what you offer? And if you're not comfortable with the medium, don't force it find something that you are good at because at the end of the day you do need to produce content you do need to present yourself as being knowledgeable in the space you can't just slap up a website because at the end of the day like you said they're all wealth management blue no offense but they're, they're templatized and you kind of know what you're getting like you said the the yachts or the sailboats and the holding hands but it, it comes down to do you have a clear mission and do you differentiate yourself with how you show up and your tone obviously you don't want to come off as sounding too kitschy or anything like that. But you need to be yourself and lean into that. Lean into the mediums. If you don't like being on cameras, do a podcast. If you don't like podcasting, write something. But you have to have something that allows people to connect with you beyond, you know, a face-to-face meeting or a phone call. They need to be able to access you in other capacities. And same thing for social. I know it can get difficult in our space, especially with compliance, but again show up the same way digitally as you do in person. I always laugh when I go on Twitter because someone is always bantering about something in our space. And I know our FinTwit space is very expressive. (laughs) We have a lot to say, but that's what makes this industry so unique is that everyone does have that opinion. And so it's a matter of harnessing that into something constructive, right? Being able to showcase that personality in in an authentic way that doesn't feel forced. I mean, yes, you need to have all the standard things that go into a marketing plan, obviously. And I, I think it was actually Aaron Klein who who said it best to me at Jolt this year. Even though the markets were down, don't stop investing in marketing <laughs> because that is going to continue to be your growth engine. It shouldn't solely rely on referrals and the advisor having to be everything to everyone. Like invest yeah. in marketing, have a plan, have your vision, have your mission and show up consistently.
1: I love that. All right, I'm gonna put you in the hot seat really quick. Ooh. You didn't know this is coming. Oh boy. But if you had a financial advisor practice today and you were trying to to reach out to all of these people who are now retiring, right? You shared the statistics earlier about, hey, there, there's more people retiring. You've got to figure out the accumulation. Lots of people are targeting retirees in the financial advisor space. So, if you had a practice and you wanted to stand out to those people who are retiring and are looking for help on the decumulation phase, and they wanted an advisor, what would you do from a marketing or branding side to get their attention?
2: Well, that's where you have to start thinking out of the box a little bit, right? And not be afraid. What I like to call is fail forward, because mm-hmm. you have to try things. That's such a specific audience, so you need to put yourself out there. So, you either need to be meeting them where they are go to local events where you know that you can meet people, right? Get involved with charities, ask for referrals, build your network. So there's going to be a little bit of that boots on the ground where you're actually actively going out and meeting them where they are. But again, it's about you really need to show that you understand them. So there's a lot of things you can do digitally now. Obviously, you have Google ads, you can geo target, but you could do that simply around just your community. If you know you live in an area and hey, there's maybe an assisted living home. Like, for example, my grandmother is in a beautiful assisted living facility in the Nashville area, but she's still self-sufficient. And so there's a lot of people like that that are going into this phase of life that they want to know that you know what you're talking about and feel comfortable. So use those digital capabilities, all those online tools. Go to events, <laughs> like it's a it's a combination of things, right? Geo targeting, Google Ads, plugging in those keywords. You got to become a little bit of a of an expert around that, but that's why you hire a marketing team. Hopefully, and the advisor's not doing this; they bring their expertise and they can distill it down. And then, like I said, you need to lean into a medium that that is going to reach them. So maybe they're not as savvy and they're maybe they want to listen to a podcast or if they do want to watch a video, but you need to ensure that you have content that can reach all of them, that they can digest it how they want. So it might be a little bit of trial and error. And I think that's what people get caught up with in marketing a lot is, is everything is so ROI and numbers driven and is this working? Is this not working? And sometimes, especially when you have a very niche audience, You just have to try things and be okay with that. Not everything is going to work. And I feel like people get so caught up with, oh gosh, I have this Google ads campaign and it's not, you know, it's not getting a ton of clicks. You know, what's wrong? This, that, the other thing, it takes time. You have to be patient. You have to truly understand those personas, truly understand that audience, and then build upon that and understand how they like to be talked to, how they like to receive content. What makes them comfortable to basically say yeah here's my retirement nest egg now help me get through it because that retirement conversations are already hard enough you're basically talking about end of life and that is very uncomfortable as is like no one wants to walk into a conversation saying i think i'm going to die on this date so how long can my my money last right yeah Yeah. so so it's it's difficult but in in marketing you just you have to try things that's yeah. what it comes down to. I mean, there's no pretty answer. To, I can't just say, "Hey, do these five things, and you'll get all the like pre-retirees and retirees to come on board." Like, nope. You just yeah. you just need to lean into what you're good at and and put in the work. At the end of the day.
1: Yeah. Oh man, that's great. There's a lot of good tips in there, uh, and I'm sure the audience can take some of that and go go build it. Don't take listen your to branch. me to
2: build a practice. No. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right. All right. So so final two questions for you as we wrap this up. One one maybe a, a little bit heavier and then one lighter and more fun. So I saw earlier in the year on social media that you were nominated as a candidate for Visionaries of the Year for Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. I mean, I, that's a great honor. And so I'd love to hear about how you got involved with that and how did you get to be nominated for that? And tell us a little bit about Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Oh, you'll
2: actually laugh because this somehow relates back to horses. Oh,
1: gosh.
2: (laughs) So it actually all came about. So um, my grandfather, unfortunately, passed away in 2010 from leukemia and it came on suddenly. And at the time, there still weren't a lot of options. It came on fast and furious. And then, you know, within a few months, he was gone. And that was devastating to me. So. It's always something that I have been interested in and passionate about. And just happened to turn out that my horse trainer here in Colorado survived leukemia, went through it, and he was up for man of the year and visionary of the year. And he actually nominated me. <laughs> I was at a lesson one day and he said, How do you feel about fundraising? And I was like, Well, I've I mean, I've done it before. I'm open to it. And he said, Well, it's for the leukemia lymphoma society. And I said, Well, ab- absolutely. And, you know, especially after COVID, it was one of those things where I just felt like I needed to put more in than I was taking out in the universe if that makes sense. And the timing was just right. It was a 10-week campaign. You know, I brought in friends and family as team members and you're essentially just trying to raise as much money as you can during those 10 weeks to go towards research, funding for patients, and it's just it's incredible. Unfortunately, I had to miss the live gala this year cuz we were at our big Wealth Management Edge event, but they they patched me in for a little bit and so I could see everyone and, and participate that way, the joys of technology. But honestly, it was one of the most challenging and rewarding initiatives I've ever been a part of because not only was it extremely personal, it gets you out of your comfort zone. While I have no issue joking around and talking to people, it's much different when you're asking folks for money. Right. That's again, kind of, kind of bring it full circle here. It, c- it can be uncomfortable and that doesn't come naturally to me because I'm also just not a sales minded or oriented person. So to go out to folks I maybe haven't talked to in a while or I'm more acquaintances with say, Hey, I'm, I'm doing this. Would you be willing? You know, five, five dollars just even goes a long way. So that actually was a great learning experience just from pushing me out of my comfort zone. And I think in in total, all of the teams we raised right under 800,000 through the campaign. So something to be really proud of. And like I said, it was just a new experience for me to be that heavily involved and have those kind of lofty fundraising goals to be attached to. But I'm always up for a challenge. I have that competitive streak, obviously, with barrel racing. It kind of all just came full circle with my personal experience, having my trainer go through it then nominate me. So the universe works in mysterious ways and the timing was just
1: right for all of it. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. Thanks for sharing. And congrats on That's an amazing outcome. Over $800,000 is really impressive. And congrats again on being nominated. Oh, that's thank amazing. you. Of course. So, you brought up competition again, and I want to just wrap this up by clearing something up. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> we need to sort out your confused sports fandom, because you're from Connecticut, you went to school in Ohio, you live in Denver, but you're a Chiefs fan. And I am. I, I have to imagine you've been accused of being a bandwagon fan at least once or twice. So I'm going to give you a chance to explain yourself and set the record straight on, uh, on this Chiefs fandom.
2: All right. So, so two things. My two sports loves are the Chiefs and the New York Rangers. Again, <laughs> kind of all, all over yeah. the map, literally yeah. here. So you know, being born and raised East Coast, especially Connecticut, we're split between two, three camps. It's like Giants, Jets. Patriots. And I didn't necessarily come from a big sports family. Like we always had it on, but my my parents never had a team. I sure I had family that were Giants fans and Patriots fans that lived in New York and things like that. And I think I was probably 12 or 13 when my girlfriends and I were running around in our Tom Brady jerseys in high school, because <laughs> just because we thought it was cool. But I, I never got attached to any football team. I, I tried To get on board with the jets but like let's be honest that (laughs) it was probably good i i stopped myself from going too far down that rabbit hole but became a chiefs fan actually uh by proxy through through my husband who again is an east coaster but lived in i know i know but lived in st louis through his high school and college years and his friends got him involved with the chiefs and So finally, you know, we would have all these arguments on the weekends. I'm like, you need to come to my horse shows and support me. And he's like, no, that's football Sunday. I'm watching the Chiefs. And I'm like, no, they're terrible. This was like 12 years ago, right, when they were rock bottom. And so I finally just got tired of fighting about it and just gave into it and actually started learning about the sports. I've always been an athlete. I love sports. I respect it. I know what goes into it to to make a team successful. So I just love that aspect of it. So I committed to actually learning about football, got really into it. And I'm not just a Patrick Mahomes bandwagon fan. I became a fan during the Alex Smith era when they were going like, you know, like two and 14 in their seasons. And and so now we are where we are now. And I've been fortunate enough to go through two Super Bowls and my proximity to Kansas City, now living in Denver, make the trip down. I've been lucky enough to go to a couple AFC championship games. And so just fell fell in love with it. I love the team. I love Kansas City. And I've just Stuck with it ever since. And so now, you know, I follow all the Twitter threads. I I am up to date on all of it. And honestly, it's been super helpful just in business too, being able to talk sports. I know that sounds ridiculous, but if you can just chat about kind of like what's going on, that it goes back to our original conversation of just being human. Like if you can just talk about those things, like, oh, all right. Well, there's some common ground there. We can talk about sports. And like I said, my other love. New York Rangers, I mean since I was little, I love hockey. I know it doesn't translate as well to TV as football does. They're kind of flip-flopped. It's yeah. hard to see the puck, but gosh, go to a game at MSG and just being part of that environment. I know the last time we won was 94, so I'm still <laughs> holding out hope. <laughs> but they're they're just a fun team. They're a classic team, you know, one of the original 6 and you know, being from the East Coast too, I just I fell in love with them when when i was young and have just endured that pain ever since <laughs> yeah.
1: well th- thanks for clearing up that uh, that confusion that's uh, a cool story um, and i'm really really happy you- yeah <laughs> oh man i'm glad you came on the show i love the conversation thanks for helping people not only Be able to connect better, but sharing what you're seeing across the industry and how we can grow and brand better to grow our businesses. Anything you want to shout out or if not, where can people find and follow you on the Internet if they're not already?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Kyle. I always enjoy our conversations and I'm actually insanely impressed that we managed to connect like marketing horses. (laughs) tech trends somehow all together. So uh, thank you for hitting on all yeah. the topics that I am passionate about and love. But if you are not following me, you can find me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter at Shannon Rosick. And then I have my Well Stack podcast. Please check that out. Those launch every Friday you've been on it. So yeah. um, speaking of personal branding, most people now know it as instead of Gadget Girl, I have Stack It or Whack It. I've been slow <laughs> dripping the market with t-shirts. So be, be prepared for, for that. <laughs> and then everything else you can find on wealthmanagement.com. That's where we host, you know, the rest of our content, all of our videos, all the events that we have coming up. So looking forward to seeing everyone out on the road again.
1: Absolutely. Awesome, Shannon. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Thank you, Kyle. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Connected. This podcast is brought to you by MileMarker and it is produced by Turncast. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps us and our show. And for more information about MileMarker and Connected, visit us at milemarker.co.